Welcome to Conversations with Future Generation. In this series, we explore the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health, and supporting children and youth at risk with amazing Australians who are leading the way. I am Louise Walsh, the CEO of the impact investing companies Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. Joining us today is Joe Hockey. Joe is the founding partner and president of the advisory business Bondi Partners. He is better known to Australians as Australia's ambassador to the US. He took up that post in Washington in January 2016 and completed the appointment at the end of January this year. An interesting time to be doing the role, with it being the final year of President Obama's tenure and then the first three years of President Trump's first term. Joe is even better known to Australians when he was the Treasurer of Australia from 2013. Joe began his career as a banking and finance lawyer at the law firm Cause after studying arts and law at the University of Sydney. In fact, Joe and I know each other quite well and have done so since 1985 when I was studying economics and law at Sydney University and we were at neighbouring on-campus colleges, some of the best years of our lives. Joe, you will probably remember that I helped you out with your first political campaign to become president of the University of Sydney Students Representative Council. Uh, You also partly inspired me to push the law firm uh, Allens to send me on secondment to the Olympic bid in 1991. And that was after I'd learned you did something similar to kickstart your political career with one of the New South Wales government ministers at the time. So welcome, Joe, to this podcast. Great to be with you, Lou. Now, first, Joe, what we might do is uh, touch on your, your career journey, and it's certainly been a stellar one, as I said earlier. What's been your career highlight? I know that might be a tough question to start, but have a go at that. Well, it's a really good question uh, because there's been lots of career highlights. Uh, you know, there's things that I'm proud of and things that I know I could have done better. Um, I have no regrets about the 2014 budget. Uh, it was the right policy document for the time. Uh, throughout my career, I've been involved in government business enterprise reform, in initiating in, initiating substantial uh, public policy from the Medical Research Future Fund to getting on with Badgerys Creek Airport. Uh, I think, in fact, the, the one I'm really proudest of was when I wasn't in Parliament, when I was a staffer back in 1991, and uh, I managed to convince the New South Wales Minister for Health to uh, have some mobile breast screening, uh, breast cancer screening vans travel around regional New South Wales. And I had to find the money. I found some cuts in other parts of the government's budget. And we started mobile screening, uh, going to areas where during a drought, too many women were too nervous about even spending the money on the petrol to go and get screening at the area hospital. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's still going today uh, nearly 30 years later is is a source of great pride to me and I often think to myself that it helped to save a lot of lives. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's the number one now that I reflect on it. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, that probably wasn't quite what I expected you to stay, say, but uh, I do think that's fantastic. If you think about the health 
issues that we're facing at the moment, how important um, health is to each and every one of us. So uh, hats off for that one. Now, your relationship with US President Donald Trump has us all all intrigued. That didn't take long, Lou, to get to that. (laughs) (laughs) This is is the most interesting stuff. I mean, how how exactly did you build that relationship? I mean, I know you're a great networker and, you know, have you got any tips for any youngsters out there who want to build their network over time? But the Trump example is a great one. Well, you've got to be yourself. I mean, one of my career highlights was when I chaired the G20 in 2014. I mean, that was a huge event for Australia. And it was, you know, coming out of the GFC, uh, there was a lot of exhaustive finance ministers, central bank governors and leaders, prime ministers and presidents. And uh, with Tony Abbott, we, we, we drove an agenda that was about, delivering reform. And we didn't get all the way there, but we, we, we certainly made some big changes. Uh, so, you know, the, be, the best tip I can, I can give is just be yourself, you know, be true to yourself. And, uh, and in everyone I've dealt with, whether it be, you know, President Xi Jinping or, or, or President Putin or uh, President Obama or, uh, or President Trump, or be it Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it's always been a case of I've tried to be myself, you know, a little bit cheeky, uh, but obviously putting myself in their shoes about all the, all the issues they're dealing with and trying to help to find a solution. And with President Trump, uh, I just, you know, I was blessed to have had 20 years in politics and many election campaigns, and I started to feel in my bones despite all the polls, that, that he could win. And uh, so I just tried to reach out. And uh, uh, and when no one else would speak to Donald Trump or the Trump campaign in uh, in in March of 16, um, I did. And, uh, and he won. And he didn't forget it. And, uh, you know, the people around him didn't forget it. And whilst there are many things that I would disagree with the president on uh, or many other people that I disagree with, I always respect the office. And if you can put aside your own bias and just be yourself and remind yourself that you're representing your country and you've got a duty to do what's in the best interest of your country, then really it's it's not. Mm, fantastic. So you don't you don't keep still. I mean, I read last week that you've taken on a political expert role for Sky News for the upcoming election. I mean, some would say that Joe Biden has a gifted opportunity uh, to nail Donald Trump at the moment. I mean, do you think he's up for the job? Oh, sure. I, I have no doubt he's up for the job, uh, and it will be a ferociously contested election. Uh, and well, every election is in many ways. In the state well everywhere if, if you know if the prize is worth having people usually throw everything they have at it uh, and I don't think that's any different here uh, and before you even ask me the question Lou, I, I don't know who's going to win because if you had have asked me in January uh, whether the world would go into recession uh, and lockdown in February, March, April, May, I would have laughed uh, 
believed it to be possible, but highly unlikely. And I think it's the same now. We don't know what the next few months are going to hold, but what we do know is that it's it's a tumultuous time in the, in global politics. I mean, it's certainly a bizarre year. There's no there's no uh, doubt about that. So uh, even the first half. So but who knows what's going to happen in the second half? Now, well, that's right. and, and I think people need to be mature enough to understand that. That uh, it, it it's a question I get asked all the time: Who's going to win? Well. Uh, you know, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll give you my best view, you know, a day or two before the election, but, but certainly not before then. No. Well, you know what's interesting is it actually wasn't one of my questions. So there ah. you go. <laughs> uh, now, we can't really talk about COVID without talking about President Trump. I mean, the pandemic has certainly been an eye-opener into Trump's leadership style. Have you got any comment on that one? Well, he certainly has a unique style, but, you know, I really, I'm working hard at, at and I think it's it's the duty of everyone that lives here in the United States and, and has an interest in Washington, you've got to work really hard to understand the history of the city and the history of the United States. Uh, this was a nation that was born out of revolution. And, uh, and, and then, you know, after a, a, a brutal revolution, Everyone formed the view that if they don't protect themselves and their family, uh, then no one else will. And uh, and that was confirmed, if you like, by one of the most brutal civil wars in the history of humanity. Uh, and more people died in the U.S. Civil War uh, than the United States lost in every other war combined. Uh, World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea, the whole lot. Uh, and it it brought you know, siblings against siblings uh, and based on race, uh, in part, it was actually started as, a, as an economic battle, but it was ended up being about slavery and race. And it still runs uh, strongly through the DNA of the United States uh, that you have to stand up for yourself uh, and don't rely on the state to protect you. Uh, we want the state to protect you. Uh, but we want them to protect us as citizens here. But but at the end of the day, um, you know, that's one reason why you have a gun culture here. If you're in distress and you ring 911 and no one answers the phone and you're threatened, what do you do? How do you react? Uh, and it becomes a part of the culture that you protect yourself. Now, Donald Trump in many ways embodies a part of the culture of the United States, which is about self-sufficiency, about uh, making sure that you're independent, that uh, you put the country first, but the country always comes behind your family and uh, and the community. And uh, uh, so that embodies itself in, in his mantra, uh, make America great again, which in fact was previously uttered by Bill Clinton and a range of presidents over the years. So uh, he, you know, he looks at the United States like many other world leaders would look at, uh, at their country, and thankfully not Australia or New Zealand, and he says, well, what is the, the, the cost of lockdown? What is the, the, the human cost of lockdown? Uh, and uh, makes a decision that uh, involves potentially the loss of life. And, of course, 
in war, generals make a, you know an estimate of casualties whenever they engage in conflict. Uh, no one would think leaders would do it. Did Donald Trump do it? I don't know, but uh, obviously he kicked into action when it looked like there was going to be somewhere between two and four hundred thousand Americans die. Uh, but at the same time, the lockdown had a profound impact on the community. And now I just think there's general defiance of a range of, of, of uh, measures that have been recommended to try and reduce the um, impact of coronavirus. And the net result is that, um, uh, you know, America's getting on with it, but it's still going to lose a lot of lives along the way. Mm. Uh, thanks for that. And I, I just wish, you know, something could be done about that health system over there. Um, well, it's know, a just- competitive system and, and you know, that, yeah, it's not it's not the system I'd want for Australia, uh, but it is a system that has delivered uh, extraordinary innovation over a long period of time. It's a system that uh, hasn't got the safety net that that I would hope it would have. Uh, but it, you know, a, a lot of the drugs we consume in Australia, a lot of the innovation that we have in our hospitals in Australia, and has come out of the United States, and uh, and there's a cost to that, and part of it is the the, the competition between the, the public sector and the private sector here, and it's also the fact that there is, you know, often no direct link between the provision of medical services and the government here, uh, and because there's no direct link in the way there is with, you know, Medicare in Australia or uh, with uh, you know the public-private hospital partnership in Australia, then it's a much harder system to manage. Uh, and the, the the hospital system in New South Wales, for example, is one of the largest single hospital systems in the world. So the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, who did a fantastic job, I mean, she was able to know what the inventory was of PPE in a very short period of time. Whereas in New York State, uh, the Governor, Andrew Cuomo, months into, uh, sorry, weeks into the coronavirus, still couldn't get the private sector to report what inventory was available uh, truthfully and therefore wasn't able to redeploy assets to those areas most in need. Mm, Yep, fair enough too. But, look, I'd love to have a bit more of a chat. Well, actually, I'd like to have a chat uh, about the US-China relations and I've got a couple of questions on that one. So to start with, how worried are you that Australia will be caught in the middle of the China and US relations? Do we need to take a side or can we appease both countries from a trade perspective? Well, at this stage, it's not either or. Uh, it is from a national security perspective, Australia has to put its people first and there is only one partner and that's the United States. Uh, and uh, we're crazy if we ever walk away uh, from uh, the partnership we have with the United States. I mean, when I was ambassador, we had military personnel, we still do, in 32 US states. We are in many ways their closest military partner, but we're most importantly their closest intelligence partner. And the the formidable partnership we have with the US protects Australians every single day from potential terrorist attacks, from uh, malevolent forces that are trying to uh, break into our 
you know, essential computer systems. Uh, it, it protects Australians around the world. And, and you know, um, I, I, I was there when there was an attempt to rescue an Australian who was held hostage by malevolent forces in Afghanistan. And I was sitting in a secure room uh, watching brave American soldiers go into, uh, you know, horrific circumstances to try and rescue an Australian. And, um, you know, ultimately uh, they were successful. But there's only one country in the world that could do that at that point of time to rescue an Australian citizen, and that was the United States. And uh, uh, those things that happen behind the scenes on a more regular basis than people know. And, you know, I was 20 years in politics and I was on the National Security Committee of Cabinet and instinctively I knew that we worked so closely with the US, but it was only when I became ambassador, went out to their facilities, went on to their warships, uh, went to their commands of Cyber Command or National Geospatial Intelligence Agency or the National Security Agency or the CIA or the FBI and saw what we did with them, it's only then that I truly understood how fortunate we are to have them. Now, we've also been blessed with a fantastic working partnership with China. I first went to China when I was 12 years of age and, uh, and it was a very, very different country then. And you and I and many of your listeners have been privileged to have witnessed the empowerment and, and of more people uh, through China moving forward than any other generation. I mean, the fact is that China's economic ascension has seen more people come out of poverty than any other time in history. And we should be proud to have been a partner on that journey. Uh, but you know, the, the views of Beijing and the aggression of Beijing towards Australia uh, is unacceptable and it's, 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 you know, it's so important that that remain a bipartisan position in Australia, that we will not cower to bullies, uh, no matter who it is, whether it be the US at its worst or, or China or any other country, we do not bow to bullies because they'll never respect you if you give in to them. Mm, here, here. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, do you think China will continue to penalise Australian industries, say with barley or beef, et cetera, for supporting the US and for calling an inquiry for COVID? Well, we've always got to do what we believe to be right. Uh, and you can nuance it with diplomacy, but what I've found in only my four years of diplomacy, because I don't think anyone said I was terribly diplomatic as a minister, but uh, what I think, uh, you know, what I've found is um, that you can nuance positions without giving up your core principles. And importantly, uh, you can make a point without trying to humiliate. I mean, I've never found that I got my way by humiliating someone. You always pay a price for that. And uh, so, you know, it's important to take a nuanced position with, with, with China. Uh, but uh, at the same time, they've got to be, you know, it's got to be crystal clear what our positions are on various issues. Uh, so there's absolutely no confusion. 
and uh, and and I think that is the best way diplomatically to handle some of these relationships with other countries. They should know where you stand. You make it clear, uh, but don't try and humiliate them along the way, whether it's China or anyone else, uh, because that never works. Well, I mean, it's going to be a difficult period. There's no doubt about it. And I see, uh, you know, the 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 growing rivalry between China and the United States is one of the most significant threats to global economic stability and geopolitical stability over the next decade. Uh, China hasn't got a friend in Washington, D.C., and uh, there is a residual fear in in parts of the White House and the administration uh, that the Democrats will go further in their anti-China sentiment than even the Republicans, the, the, the aggression of, uh, of China uh, it, towards the US is being reciprocated now and uh, by the US. And, you know, it's going to be a very difficult period, but uh, Australia will, will have to get the balance right and that's going to require some really deft, not only deft diplomacy, but deft politics. And you're absolutely right. Maurice Payne is a top-shelf operator in this space, and uh, and Scott Morrison, and, and to his credit, Anthony Albanese, and no one in the Labor Party is really trying to exploit it uh, at the divisions, and when they do, uh, I, I think common sense prevails. Mm. Okay, thank you. Now, look, it's certainly all happening in the US of late. I mean, I'd like to have a, a bit of a chat now about Black Lives Matter. I mean, what does that look like in America at the moment? the political implications for Donald Trump and the probability of reform. Have you got any comment on, on that? Yeah, I, look, you know, they're, they're, all nations have some element of racism. I mean, let's be frank, you know, that when you look around Asia, racism is, is, is you know, writ large uh, and many other parts of the world, uh, racism is, is a horrible part of the DNA of a number of different countries. And good people need to stand up against racism. Uh, There is a long history of uh, conflict here in the United States between African-Americans and and white Americans, and and that's tragic. That's tragic. And it's, I mean, slavery could, could, is the foundation stone. And, And can you think of anything more degrading for a race? Than to be subject to slavery, so uh, it is it is a long history of of pain, and uh, and look, you know, it was the last lynching in America it was in Mobile, Alabama, in nineteen eighty one, and uh, and you know, so some people believe that that you know God's on their side when they engage in racist behaviour, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, and it's also a case that, you know, it's a very complicated policing system here in the US. There are 18,000 different police forces in the United States, 18,000. And uh, I was shocked when I came here and saw that our local community has its own police. Uh, then you've got the Secret Service. Then you've got the Metropolitan Police, the National Cathedral, uh, has its own police force. They wear police on their on the on their jackets and they carry guns. Uh, and and of course every county and 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 you know has a sheriff and 
city has, you know, police commissioners, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there are systemic issues. Uh, One is that a a bad policeman, a a rogue policeman, uh, is able, um, after being uh, thrown out of one police force, is able to cross a border and go and work in another one uh, without any record. Um, It's also the case that there are some counties and cities that allow violence that Australians would find objectionable against uh, against uh, some individuals in the name of the law. So there needs to be reform, sensible reform. I think sensible people accept that, and it's part of a continuing journey of making amends. Uh, having said that, it's a pretty frightening place, America, to be a policeman or a policewoman. Um, they're incredibly courageous because of the gun laws. So many of them walk up to a car not knowing if the driver is going to pull a gun on them. And uh, so they live on edge, you know. So I think there is a lot of tension here and uh, a lot of guilt, and and the guilt is appropriate. Uh, And uh, and I think, you know, people of of, of reasonable mind will say, how can we make it better? Mm. Yeah. No, it's a a challenging time. I mean, you've got a lot of challenging issues there at the moment, but uh, you're right in on the action. Well, and, and, and there's a long history, Lou. I mean, you know, I, if you look at it, I mean, for example, the two examples that, that, that I cite, in 1922, and I know that's a long time ago, but 40,000 members of the Ku Klux Klan marched through the middle of Washington, D.C., and quarter of a million people came out to support on the streets of Washington, D.C. That was 1922. And in 1932... Uh, the president, Herbert Hoover, worried about an uprising by war veterans from World War I during the Depression. He ordered General MacArthur to effectively shoot and uh, shoot war veterans that were protesting for the money and the pensions that they needed to survive the Great Depression. And two of the, two of the officers that were supporting MacArthur were uh, George Patton and, and, uh, and Eisenhower. And, uh, and, you know, they were scarred by the experience. So, for example, it wasn't any surprise in a sense that modern-day generals, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came out and said, hang on, you know, we don't shoot our own people. The military does not take on the people of America. I mean, if, if you know, if the military doesn't support the public, the public will not support the military. And that's been a partnership in place for years and there's been moments when it's been sorely tested. With great cost, and uh, and so you know, there's a lot of history uh, that people need to be aware of in order to understand what's happening today in DC. Mm. I can see that your uh, American history skills have uh, gone through the roof. Well, yeah, I mean, you've you've got to do it, right? I mean, you, you can't, you know, we give we give advice to to clients, and we help with transactions at Bondi Partners and we, we do lots of different things. But, uh, you know, I set it up on with a specific focus on making sure that Australians better understood the real America and Americans better understood the real Australia. And no one's been in this space. And yet we, we they're our biggest, you know, security partner uh, and, you know, our biggest investor by far and our second biggest trading partner and probably will one day be our biggest trading partner again. Fantastic. So 
Look, you've seriously been exposed to the world of philanthropy, of course, living in in Washington, D.C., during and post your term as the Australian ambassador. What are your thoughts on how Australia can do it better? I mean, what can we learn from the U.S.? Because they're so good at it over there. Yeah, I think people should be more overt with their generosity. And uh, I get so frustrated when I meet high net worth individuals in Australia that, um, uh, you know, are tight, are not generous, that need to be asked to be generous. Uh, there's no, I, 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 I just think, you know, and then when they give money, they, you know, which is, which is not a significant amount of money, they think they're being generous, uh, uh, you know, and it, it's, it's all wrong. I mean, you can't take all any of your money with you. And, you know, that's why, you know, I love people like, uh, you know, Andrew and Nicola Forrest. I mean, they are, they are, you know, uh, you know, they really wear it and they, they, they give and they never say no. And there are many people like that in Australia. They're incredibly generous people. But, um, you know, I, I love in America that there's competition for the generosity. And the, the first point of call for someone who is philanthropic is not to try and get the government to match them dollar for dollar. It is, I want to be generous. I don't mind if you put my name on a building or, uh, or, or recognise it. Maybe that will encourage other, others to be generous as well. And that's really impressive. Uh, I don't know how many times over the years people have said to me, if I give this much to charity, would you, would you match it? Uh, I don't mind the approach, but I do mind if they've got the financial capacity to do it all, uh, but they want to, you know, effectively ask the taxpayer, who at the end of the day is as much Betty Bankstown or Brian Broken Hill as it is, you know, as someone, um, your next door neighbour. I mean, to ask for their money to, you know, match your generosity, uh, I think is a little bit, little bit rich. Uh, and uh, so I would ask people to to be generous, but not be afraid to to talk about it, even though you get the pain of everyone asking for your money. But be generous because. You know, I, I think it, it's a good thing to do. I mean, and I, I try and live it. I mean, you know, that's that's a sacrifice you make for, for hopefully for good political life, for good public life, but also financially where you can. All right. Well, look, one last question, and, and hopefully this is probably one of the, the easier questions to end on. I mean, who's been your biggest inspiration? Oh, uh, you know. My dad. Mm, thought you might say that. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Oh, it's pretty hard. But um, you know, he uh he, you know, he his father, he was born in Bethlehem and his father walked out on him the day he was born, had to grow up in an orphanage, you know, made his way through the military at a very young age. British Army in Palestine, uh, you know, by good chance came to Australia as a refugee and did it from there. And, you know, I mean, without without my parents, uh, it, w- it just, I wouldn't have been the person I was, obviously. Mm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> tried to say I wouldn't be here because <laughs> I wouldn't be here. But, uh, but you know, they, they, 
it's the values that come through. And, uh, you know, I'm most impressed with every parent that is a better parent than that which they had. I mean, you know, for people that come from really adverse circumstances and, you know, who had bad parents or had a really tough upbringing, and when I see them, as, you know, working as incredible parents, and I just, you know, they're they're the greatest people on earth because they've overcome everything they were taught or everything they 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 learned um, and everything they experienced to be their very best, and you know, they're the greatest mentors you can ever have. Mm. Yep, I I share that one with you because I absolutely understand the value and. And still do to this day. I've lost my father as well, but um, you know I'm hanging on to my mother as long as I can. Believe me. Mm. All right. Well, look on that note, Joe. I just want to say a huge thanks for joining us today. It was a privilege uh, to delve into your career and some of your personal life, especially in the latter years. Um, it's certainly been a cracking ride so far, and I'm sure that will continue. Knowing knowing you, so thank you. Well, well, Lou, thank you. And, and to all of those listening, thank you so much. And, and thank you for helping to build a great country in Australia. And, and also thank you for giving us Louise Walsh. Uh, she was my first running mate when I ran for president of the SRC at Sydney University. And when I approached her, she said, What's, what, what, is, what is the platform of the party we're forming? And uh, <laughs> when I said, I haven't got a platform, that we're going to have a good time. Uh, she signed up and without Lou's help, uh, I wouldn't have been president of Sydney University and who knows, you know, I might have ended up uh, doing something else uh, not quite as salubrious as, uh, as a political career. So thanks, Lou, and all the best to you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the fourth episode of Conversations with Future Generation, which we will release in July. So continue to stay safe. And uh, goodbye and thank you.